together and let's turn in our Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 5. Sunday mornings we're studying the first epistle of Peter. We're coming very close to the end of it now. And uh, if you're here with us today and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just get their attention by waving to them, they'll get a Bible into your hand. And then absolutely, if you don't own a Bible, take that one home, make it your own, and then bring it to church next Sunday and make a good friend uh, of it. First Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. Uh, that, that would be bad enough. But it goes on and it says, Seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So it is. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And even as we head into these handful of verses, we realize that they are in your book because they're intended to accomplish something important in each one of our lives. They are a part of thoroughly furnishing us under every good work. And we surrender ourselves, even as we've sung this morning, to you now as we begin the study of your word. And we just ask that whatever needs to be rearranged or added to or cut away as it relates to our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength, in order for these verses and the truths that are found in them to have a living place in each one of our lives, we pray that you would do that. And we pray, Lord, for the work of your Holy Spirit that is needed in order for that to happen. Thank you for your Holy Spirit and all that he does in our lives. Thank you that we never turn to this book uh, independent of you and your power and your revelation by your Spirit. And so we ask that your Spirit would be great in the room today and that he would be great in each one of our individual hearts. Speak to us, Lord, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning we come to one of the classic passages in all of the Bible that has to do with the devil and has to do with spiritual warfare in the life of a Christian. And traditionally, this passage is broken down into three parts. Each of the parts begin with the same letter, the letter R, which is just fabulous for memorization, and it breaks down into three words, recognize, resist, and rejoice. And recognize is the theme of verse 8, resist is the theme of verse 9, rejoice is the theme of verses 10 and 11. And because that, I don't think that that outline of these verses can be improved upon any way, in, in any way, we'll make those our three points from this passage as well. And I think uh, for me, if for no other reason that it makes it easy for the purposes of memorization, and our time this morning will be absolutely successful 
If for the rest of our lives as Christians, when we turn to this passage in the Bible, we think to ourselves, now what was it? What was those three words that were the key to this passage? And we remember recognize, resist, and rejoice. We'll have had a very, very successful time in God's Word here this morning. And it really wouldn't do any Bible any harm to have those three words written in the margin uh, of your Bible uh, related to this passage. Now, we remember that this letter is written to Christians who are in the midst of suffering, and so we think to ourselves, then why in the world would the Holy Spirit uh, make sure that a section of a letter that is written to suffering Christians would include instruction concerning the devil and concerning spiritual warfare? And I think he does so for the simple reason that it's during times of suffering and the times of trial that the devil will so often jump in on top of everything else that we're facing to see if he can then, uh, when we're kind of think we're stretched to our max, see if he can take and overthrow our faith or just simply make life a little bit more miserable for us. You know, there's a lot to dislike about the devil. That's an understatement. There's a lot to dislike about the devil, but I think that he is especially ugly in this characteristic of piling on when life circumstances are already hard enough for us as Christians. He shows us really no mercy at all. Now, as Christians, the Bible teaches that we are a triunity or a trinity once we were born again. We are a triunity of body, the physical body that we have, of soul, that is our intellect, our thinking, our emotions are included in the soul, and then also of spirit, that is what the Holy Spirit brought into our lives when we were born again by the Holy Spirit, that whole new nature. And so we are uh, like our Heavenly Father and like the Holy Spirit and like Jesus. We are one person, one body, but we are a trinity. We're a triunity. And uh, because we are a triunity and a trinity, when one area of our life gets hit, then it carries over and it affects all of the other areas of our life. For example, when we get sick physically, it affects our minds. It affects our soul, which is our mind is a part of our soul. We can't think as clearly as we normally would. When we get sick physically, it can affect our hearts. We can become less patient with other people than we would otherwise be. When we get bad news, something uh, of a na- bad news of a nature comes into our mind. The news as it comes into our mind never stops there, but immediately then transfers also into our who and what we are emotionally, so it is affected, and, and then it affects us uh, physically, and so forth. There's nothing that happens that doesn't af- affect the totality of us, whatever it is coming in. And so the devil knows that when we are already in the midst of a situation that's really taxing us emotionally and mentally and physically, as is the case with the Christians that are being written to here by uh, the Apostle Peter, he knows that they and we are already stretched, and so he attacks to see if we can become weakened uh, spiritually in a way that we wouldn't normally be susceptible to his attack, 
and to see if he can discourage us or make us believe one of his lies again in a way that we wouldn't normally do so if we weren't already being stretched uh, by our current trial or suffering. So the point is that we have to be especially aware of spiritual warfare uh, during these times of trial in our lives. Not obsessed with the devil. Remember when I was a new Christian, there was a guy on television, well, it was Ernest Angley. He's like a caricature of uh, but this Christian minister. Boy, was he kooky. But, but I flipped on, and I didn't know one person from another, and he's up there, and he's just a character, and he's up in front. And I remember he announced that he was beginning like a 40-part series on the devil. I'm, I mean, can, can you imagine coming to church a whole year? on Sunday morning, and the series is on the devil. I mean, my heart sunk. I changed the channel. Um, so, to, you know, to something uh, worthwhile like cops or something, you know. <laughs> so we don't want to be obsessed with, uh, with the devil, but we do need to be aware that he really does choose those kind of times to attack our faith. And then we need to know how to respond to it in a way that we don't believe his lies or we don't fall prey to his devices or the ways that he tries to get to us and, and the ways that he attempts to mar our Christian witness. So recognize verse 8. So first we notice that we're to recognize that we have an adversary in our Christian walk, the devil. And he's described as an adversary. Uh, the Greek word that's used there is diablos. It means to accuse, which is very appropriate of him. He's disgusting in every way. Uh, he's just appallingly terrible in every way that you could describe. But it, how he works in, in our lives as Christians is he works so hard to tempt us to sin and then the moment we do sin, he runs to our Heavenly Father to accuse us before the throne of God uh, over what it is that, that we have uh, done. In chapter, Revelation chapter 12, we read of uh, this activity that he's the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night. And at that point in time in the tribulation, he will be cast down. In Revelation chapter 9, he's named the destroyer. Uh, in the Hebrew, Abaddon. In the Greek, Apollyon. And both of those names mean destroyer. He is a destroyer. That's all he knows how to do with a human life, whether uh, the person is saved or whether they're unsaved. It's his name. It's his very identity. And this is in keeping with Peter's description of Satan as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour as a destroyer. I remember as a young boy, the first time I ever went to the San Francisco Zoo, I was about eight years old, and we were told, my twin brother and I, ahead of time, that as a part of our trip to the San Francisco Zoo, we would be visiting the building that was given over to the lions, and that they would be feeding the lions at two o'clock, well, I tried to give due attention to everything else in that zoo, but candidly, I couldn't think of anything else. But at 2 o'clock, we are going to go into that room, and they're going to feed those lions, and we're going to watch them eat. I and mean, it's just the highlight of the day. And so the time came, and they threw the big, giant 
slabs of meat out under the floor in each of the cages and the lion would take and bat it around to give it some semblance of life or something, some conquest, and then it would devour the meat. And then when you're a boy at that age, you know, you just think, wow, what if, what if one of those lions got out and, you know, started running around in here and everything? That'd be terrifying. It'd be like a hometown buffet for the lion. <laughs> we called it smorgabobs in those days. That was what was in our town. But, and then, uh, because most of us, when we see a lion, I mean, as close as we get to a lion is maybe watching some kind of a nature show on television, and we see them get the gazelle, we see them get the zebra or whatever it is, and we just, it's close enough to be in the living room with the television on and the remote in your hand. You wouldn't want it in your living room. You might not want to do that with 3D even, whenever that all starts happening. But and then, uh, horrifically, it was just a few years ago where that one lion jumped out of its uh, enclosure and was loose in the San Francisco Zoo. Can you imagine? You put yourself in the place of the people as the news is getting... You know, you're walking down with the kids, and then you look up at the walkway, and there's a lion out there uh, loose at the moment. And you're just thinking, okay, how is this display working? While your mind's trying to, you know, grapple with the reality. And it ended up being a very, very uh, terrible uh, situation. And so that's how uh, Peter is using it here as he speaks about uh, the devil as a roaring lion. And he may be speaking of it very well in terms of thinking about the Roman Colosseum. Christians are being thrown to the lions at this point in time of the persecution against them. And you could go to the Colosseum and watch lions rip people to shreds. That's what the culture had gone down to. We're on our way there ourselves. But this is so to, to the destructiveness of a lion. All it knows how to do is just to destroy and, and to eat. And so a, a perfect picture as it relates to the devil. Now the devil has a, a special interest in attacking Christians. And one of the reasons is, is we're really bad advertising for him. Because we've come out of darkness, we've come out of believing his lies, we've come into light, we've come into a relationship with God, and so we're just really bad advertising for him. The fact that you are a Christian and you walk with God is just like this neon light to the whole wide world that there's another kingdom other than the kingdom of darkness, and you can escape that kingdom and come into the glory of this kingdom. And and so he puts a special focus upon Christians and uh, and, and attacking Christians. There is a... Satan cannot steal our salvation from us as Christians, but he can attempt to lead us into a life of sin that will then tend to keep us uh, condemned and uh, where we wouldn't be comfortable sharing our faith because of the inconsistency in our life. And that's what he's concerned about. He doesn't want the gospel to go out or that he can attack us. We don't even recognize him that he's attacking us and we allow our life to go into such a kind of a miserable uh, existence where we just think all of life is terrible and, and, uh, and we give the appearance of being so miserable and gloomy as, as Christians that when the lost are watching our lives, uh, they see nothing attractive about the Christian life and never dream of becoming a Christian at all in the light of what they see in us. And if the devil is successful in that way, then, 
then he's uh, very, very happy. So as a Christian, it's important for us to hit the devil every once in a while with a four-by-four, four, not with a literal four-by-four, four, but a verse in the Bible, 1 John 4-4. Four, four. Everybody ought to know about that four-by-four four in spiritual warfare, and it declares that greater is he that is God who is in us than he that is in the world, than the devil. Always God in us greater than the devil. But at the same time, we're to be sober and vigilant. Now, Satan is described as a roaring lion probably because that's the method that he was using at the moment in an attempt to destroy the church, destroy Christians in that persecution against them by Rome in that that first century. It was just an open, blatant, ruthless, bloodthirsty persecution against Christians. But as we read the Bible, we realize that that uh, coming as a roaring lion is one form that he takes, but it's not the only form that he takes. Sometimes he comes as a serpent, very, very craftily, to and quietly and subtly to draw a person uh, into sin. Sometimes he comes, the Bible says, as an angel of light. And so he appears to be a religious teacher that's maybe uh, teaching false doctrine to lead us into some kind uh, of a lie about spiritual things. Now we do notice that Peter had no doubts as to the existence of the devil. And uh, neither will any Christian who uh, decides to obey the Lord and to serve the Lord at whatever the cost. I love uh, the old story of an elderly uh, liberal minister and a very young, zealous Christian. And uh, the liberal, elderly liberal minister said to the young, zealous Christian, you know, you talk about the devil this and the devil that. I've been a minister for 35 years, never run into him yet. And the young minister said, has it ever occurred to you that it might be because you're going in the same direction? If you change direction, you'll run into him a lot and discover that he is real. And there's a lot of truth to that. Well, Jesus certainly believed in a literal devil, and he'd be the one to know, wouldn't he? In Luke chapter 10, when he had sent out the 70 disciples to go out preaching the gospel and to heal and, and to cast demons out of people and this kind of thing, they returned with joy and they declared to the Lord, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I was there at the time of his fall and his rebellion against my father's authority. He said, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the demons are subject to you, but, that this, uh, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. The apostle John wrote in 1 John that Jesus was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. The person who doesn't believe in the devil is a person that has already... Uh, just basically folded to the devel uh, because now he 's free he 's free to pummel that person uh, mercilessly, and because they don 't believe in the one that 's destroying their life, I mean he has no resistance at all, all or he just leaves them alone because the person that doesn 't believe in the devil uh, certainly isn 't going to believe in God, and all the devil really cares about doesn 't care about destroy, you know giving us a bad day or making us poor or this or that. all he cares about is that to get as many men, women, and children to uh, die without being saved, without having put their faith 
in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and then end up in judgment the same way that he's going to end up in judgment. So if somebody doesn't want to believe in his existence, he'll very well leave them alone all of their life and only begin to ramp up his activity when somebody shares the gospel with them and they start to give some real consideration to God, their sin, their need for salvation, these kinds of things, and then all of a sudden he'll rise up and and the person will become very aware of the fact that he does exist if they're honest in, in their assessment. Now, because Satan can come against us as a roaring lion or in subtler forms as an angel of light or as a serpent, Peter exhorts us to be sober and to be vigilant concerning him. And the word sober means to be sober-minded. That's the idea. It's not just not to be drunk. It's to be uh, serious-minded, sober-minded, to be self-controlled in the face of the devil's temptations. And so uh, sin, temptation, spiritual warfare, the attack upon our Christian witness, these things aren't uh, laughing matters. These are serious issues. He's a serious adversary, and we need to take that uh, seriously. I'm reading a book currently on uh, the war in uh, Afghanistan and uh, our uh, uh, military forces that are in the hottest part of Afghanistan fighting the Taliban there. And nobody in that battle uh, uh, forgets that that there's an enemy that, that they're fighting against. They never drop their guard related to that, never cease to be conscious of that. And uh, so we aren't either in, our, in this spiritual warfare. We're to be vigilant, which means to be watchful for the devil's uh, devices. You know, you, you watch again those nature shows and you see a, a herd of a gazelle or a herd of zebras. I mean, they ne- they're always a little antsy, aren't they? Now, we're not to be antsy. But they're always looking around for some predator coming, a lion coming after them. And they never ever like drop their guard and, you know, lay on their backs and just, you know, put on some suntan lotion and some sunglasses and with their belly up, you know, for whatever might happen. They're always sober and vigilant related to to their enemy. Now, behind this exhortation to be sober and to be vigilant is the concern of Peter's that Satan's attacks and his devices against us would be quickly recognized, that Satan wouldn't be allowed to attack us over and over and over again for days or weeks or months, and we fail to realize that this is spiritual warfare that's going on in our life. This is the enemy that's attacking us and attacking our faith and attacking, trying to attack God's effectiveness uh, through our lives. So he, he gives this command so that we would not go on and on without recognizing his devices and his ways <clears throat> and that warfare, but to recognize them for what they are. I think that it's very helpful to give some consideration to this as it relates to spiritual warfare. If we experience emotions or thoughts that have no basis in a physical reality in our lives, then it's good to give some consideration to the fact that spiritual warfare might be their source. Let me give you a few examples of this. Let's take an example as it relates to the emotion of fear. 
where one day you just wake up, I mean, you get up, wake up in the morning and you no sooner get your two legs over the side of the bed and you're gripped by fear in your heart, just takes over in, in an instant. Nothing has changed in your life from the night before or the day before. In other words, the fear has no basis in a physical reality. Your financial situation hasn't changed. There's no troubled relationship in your life that wasn't troubled the day before. Nothing has changed about your physical reality, but today you've got this paralyzing fear that something terrible is going to happen to you. It happens all the time. It's a part of spiritual warfare. You know, it's one thing to be fearful because that fear has a basis in reality. In other words, our physical circumstance or the physical realm has changed in some way. I can trace it to that. I can put my finger on it. I'm experiencing fear right now because of a bill I got in the mail or because of some tests they're running on me and they haven't given me the results of those tests. But if you can't put your finger on why you're fearful from the physical realm, then very often it can have its origin outside of the physical realm, and it can be coming from the spiritual realm, from spiritual warfare. I'm going to lose my job. There's no basis in reality for it, but now I'm paralyzed by it. My husband is going to leave me, or my wife is going to leave me, and there's no basis. Uh, for that fear in the physical reality. Sometimes it can manifest itself in like a depression or a melancholy. And that's, that was probably my first experience with spiritual warfare. As a very new Christian, I was raised in a home where uh, my mother dealt with depression, among a lot of other things that were going on in her life. So our home was a very, very depressing environment to grow up in. And I determined that once I became an adult, that I would never allow depressing people around. I'm not around me. I'm not that person today. I don't have that criteria today. So, you know, you mature in life. But that was my attitude. I don't want to be around it. I've invested enough of my life in that kind of a scene. So anywhere I was, I put the lamp stand on, shade on my head, and was the life of the party. Not really. <gasps> I'm a Scot. But anyway... I determined to be like that. And I, then I became a Christian. And all of a sudden, this kind of mild depression or melancholy would just come upon my life. Just this terrible feeling. It became the very thing that not only I never wanted to become, but I didn't want to be around anybody that was like that. And then I noticed that was happened most often when it was like the, the Wednesday, when we would be going to church on the Wednesday night or the home fellowship related to a Tuesday or Thursday or whatever it might be. And I realized, all right, this is a method of the devil to try and hijack my new walk with the Lord through this melancholy. It had no basis in a physical reality. Nothing had changed in my life except that I'd become a Christian. There was no reason for it, and it was just like welcome to spiritual warfare. Sometimes it can manifest itself in impatience or frustration or in anger uh, with other people where... Nobody around you today can do anything right. Sometimes it'll go into 48 hours or a week or longer than that. We're so impatient and frustrated with people. Every, the whole world is filled with idiots. 
from your spouse to the kids to your closest friends and relatives all the way up. And yet, they were just as big of idiots the day before. <laughs> Nothing has changed one bit about them. And yet today, you're so frustrated and angry and impatient with them, and yet nothing has changed in the physical reality. And to stop and give some consideration to the fact, is this a spiritual warfare that's coming against me by the devil? Sometimes it can uh, uh, manifest itself in covetousness, where you're just consumed to buy something. You've just got to have this certain something. And I had a friend of mine who was a... Uh, he actually introduced uh, my wife and I, Karen, and uh, his name was Ken Bunyard, and he had an MG, leaked oil everywhere. But he had this whole thing of just, all he could talk about forever was his MG, 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 as we talked about him. And uh, he loved that MG. And sometimes you can just get obsessed to buy some particular thing. And it's just like it's, it just got you. And then the crazy thing is, is sometimes we don't recognize it for an attack of some kind. And then we buy the silly thing, and no sooner do we buy it, and we couldn't care less about it. But now we've got to pay for it. <laughs> and it could be spiritual warfare and covetousness to try and attack us in some way. Sometimes it can manifest itself in unforgiveness or in bitterness where you forgave that person 20 years ago for what they did to you. And one day you wake up and it's like it just happened yesterday, just like it happened five minutes ago. And all the emotions are churning again and all the bitterness, all the anger related to it. Nothing's changed in your physical reality from 20 years ago. And yet now all of this is happening where is it coming from? So often from spiritual warfare. Sometimes it can manifest itself in just great crushing discouragement in our service to the Lord. Well, we were no smarter or dumber or more effective or less effective in our service to the Lord today than yesterday. Nothing's changed in the physical reality. It's just spiritual warfare coming against us. And then sometimes it can just be a... It manifests itself in an out-of-the-blue kind of tension, sometimes within a marriage or in a parent-child relationship. Or sometimes it can manifest itself in jealousy that comes out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, there's this consumed with jealousy, and there's no basis or reason for it in the physical reality. And I think that so often, and Peter understands it, of course, that half the battle is to remember as Christians that we're in a spiritual battle and then recognizing Satan's devices, just recognizing, being sober and vigilant to how he works and, and then recognizing his devices. And so often it doesn't mean he, when he attacks us, he's a great student of each of our lives, at least his demonic realm is. I don't know what their filing system is, but... It's very, very good. But they know, what, they know what we're susceptible to, what devices are most effective against us. Not all of them are equally effective because we're different kinds of people. And it doesn't mean that they'll always stick with those devices and never use other ones because they're always probing in, in some way. But it is good to know, wow, I, the devil seems to think that I have a weakness in this area of melancholy or discouragement or something like that, and I need to be 
be sober and vigilant in recognizing uh, the devil's opposition to me in that way. Recognizing this, our enemy, of course, is only half of the battle. We also need no, to know how to successfully resist him. And so Peter speaks of that in verse 9. He commands us to resist the devil. And the idea is to stand firm against him. This is talking about when the devil attacks us and we make a stand against him that doesn't allow him to overrun us. Well, how in the world do we resist the devil? And Peter gives us, uh, points us to two things. He says, first of all, we're to resist him by remaining steadfast in the faith. In other words, we never allow any attack of the devil against us as Christians to ever cause us to consider abandoning our relationship with God or his call upon our lives as a means of gaining some kind of relief from this spiritual warfare that he's bringing against our lives on top of everything else. And that would be a temptation. There's a single Christian in the whole wide world that is obeying God and serving God in the capacity that he's called you and I to serve him that does not hit this place where sooner or later there's that temptation to think this is too much for me. It isn't, but we can feel that way. This is too much for me, and I, I will consider pulling back in terms of God's call upon my life or some other area of life in order to gain some kind of, of relief from what I'm in the middle of. And so he tells us that we're not to do that. We're to remain steadfast in, uh, in the faith and the lordship of Jesus in our life is to remain a settled uh, issue. So we just, he just says, just simply continue to obey God, continue to serve God, continue to love God, no matter how hard or how great the opposition is. Additionally, we're to resist him steadfastly in the faith by staying true to the word of God. Remember that when Satan uh, tempted Jesus... Uh, following his water baptism by John the baptizer and was beginning his public ministry, Jesus responded to Satan's temptation by quoting the Word of God. He, he uh, resisted in the faith through the Word of God. And uh, three times he said to the devil, as the devil attacked him, three times, each time he responded, it is written, it is written, it is written. He quoted some passage from the Bible that uh, came, uh, contradicted the temptation that Satan was bringing his way. Uh, each of the verses that he quoted was from the book of Deuteronomy, the theme of which is the theme of obedience. And the devil was trying to tempt him into disobedience. And so he, it wasn't just any old verse. It was a verse that he applied against the specifics of that particular attack. And as a result, Satan's temptations were unsuccessful, and uh, he pulled off and he seized, uh, ceased and he left Jesus for a season. Now, some of us can sit here and look and we'll say, of course Jesus was able to resist the devil and the devil would leave him, but I'm not Jesus. I'm just a, you know, a mere human being. It's fascinating that when Jesus dealt with the devil, he did not deal with the devil out of his deity. Jesus could have said to the devil, listen, why are you bothering me? Could have called fire down from heaven and left him just a little pile of ashes on the side uh, of the road there in the, in the wilderness. 
And then we would have read of that, and, and, and we would look at it and say, well, I'm glad Jesus could do that, but I can't do that when the devil attacks me. So what hope does that give me? Jesus did not deal with the devil out of his deity. He dealt with him out of his humanity. In other words, he dealt with the devil's temptations in the same way that we can by knowing the Word of God and then responding to his temptations with the Word of God. And he gave us that example of how to do that and how it works. Again, we've quoted it the last Sunday, in the very least, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. The Bible declares that we're to have, possess as Christians a disciplined mind. And, and, and the disciplined mind takes every thought into captivity that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. In other words, we don't just let any old thought and idea come into our minds and stay there. We put it to the test of the Scriptures. So a thought comes into my mind, I test it by the Scriptures. If it matches the Scriptures, then it's safe, it's allowed to stay in my mind. If it, does, if it violates the Scriptures, then it's exalting itself against the knowledge of God, what we know about God, and it's not worthy of being in our mind and thus into our heart and other parts of our life. So we say that's a thought that is not worthy of a Christian. We take it captive and we throw throw it out of our mind. And that's the discipline uh, mind and how it works and how the Word of God works in dealing with spiritual warfare. Because the devil, his methodology is to use lies. And so he lies and he lies and he lies and he lies. And sometimes his lies are so subtle, they're difficult to recognize. And so how do, are we able to recognize them? By testing it by the Word of God, and it always exposes his lies. The old saying, we can't keep a bird from landing in our hair, but we can keep it from building a nest there. And so the same way, we can't keep uh, thoughts from coming into our mind, uh, but we can determine whether that thought is going to be allowed to continue to stay in our mind. And, and so uh, th that's how we handle his temptations and, and, and all when they come into our mind. Test them by the Word of God. And of course, that requires a working knowledge of the Word of God, which is what uh, Bible study is all about. So when, when we deal with Satan's temptations by responding with Scripture, the devil's not going to hang around and just listen to us quote Scripture to him. That's got to be like squeaking in his ear or screeching or something. And so ultimately he will leave off his attack as James put it, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Prayer is also another good way to resist the devil uh, in the faith. And I think that if every time he attacks us, it drives us to prayer, to talk with God about the attack. And Satan recognizes every time I attack that Christian, all it does is drive him or her closer to God and deeper in their relationship with God, and then he's going to be very, very careful about uh, attacking and when he sees that that's how we respond to it. And the other factor related to prayer and while it's, why it's so valuable in spiritual warfare is we can't pray specifically about the attack that's going on in our life and then call in, you know, the big artillery uh, from God that he would take and disrupt the attack and, 
and uh, leave it off of us. And so our greatest weapons in resisting the devil are the word of God and prayer, as the apostle Paul brought out in his great teaching in Ephesians 6 related to uh, the armor of God. And if we do these things, then we can just rest in the fact that we will be absolutely successful against any spiritual warfare that the devil uh, brings against us. We don't have any reason to fear him at all. We come to the place that Martin Luther did in his life. Martin Luther was the, one of the great uh, founders of the Protestant Reformation. And, and I, he probably did have direct contact, not with demonic beings, but the devil himself. That's how important his life, as well as Zwingli and others at that time, probably had the personal attention of the devil. And the story is told of how one night he was asleep in his bed and the devil appeared to him in the room and and he woke up and saw him there and he said, oh, it's you. And he rolled back over and he went to sleep. So he had become so familiar to the warfare uh, that, that he's completely at peace in the middle of it. The second thing that Peter tells us to do in this resisting is we're to remember that the same sufferings we're experiencing are being experienced by our brotherhood in the world who are also living faithfully for the Lord. And this is really a great, great comfort to us. Because one of the things that the devil tries to do in spiritual warfare is to isolate us, to make us feel like um, we're alone or that we're some kind of an oddball because he attacks us or because we have to deal with these kind of, uh, of things or there's something wrong with us or we're the only people that person that goes through this kind of, of thing. But none of that is true. And Peter reminds us that Christians all around the world are experiencing the same things that we're experiencing and spiritual warfare, and it really does help us to, uh, you know, there's, there's a comfort in numbers that way, and it helps us to realize that we aren't odd. Everyone else is uh, successfully navigating this. We can successfully navigate it uh, as well, and it really gives us a resolve to continue to stand firm as others are all around the world. And I like to think of the fact that The devil can only be one place at a time. He has a whole demonic realm, angels that followed him in his rebellion against God, but they're finite in number also. And and so I always figure that, all right, if he's hitting me right now with this kind of intensity, it just means that uh, somewhere else in the world, someone in the body of Christ is getting some relief at the moment. And uh, it helps me a little bit. and uh, vice versa. So we're to realize that we're not odd, we're not crazy, we're not unusual or alone, but this is going on all around the world in the body of Christ. Won't go on forever, but it is our portion in this fallen world. And then finally, uh, he tells us to rejoice in verses 10 and 11. And we rejoice in the knowledge, verse 10, that God has all the grace we need to victoriously navigate anything that the devil will ever throw at us. No matter what the difficulty or trial that we find ourselves in, that the devil piles on with his spiritual warfare, God has grace that is greater still to add to our lives so that we can successfully uh, endure it and successfully uh, navigate or manage it 
God will give us all the grace that he knows that we need to get through those seasons. And of course, as we go through a season of spiritual warfare, we realize there are seasons. They don't go on endlessly. There is a a relief before maybe the next season will begin, and we discover that God got us through that, and he gave us the grace to do that. And I like one of the songs that we sing. I think there's a line in it that says, his grace is greater still. And I love that line because his grace is always greater still than anything that we will ever, ever face that the devil or the world or persecution brings against us. We also rejoice in the fact, he tells us, that we have been called to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. So again, Peter looks beyond this life, and he looks into the life that is going to come, the day when we're in heaven and there's not going to be any more persecution or spiritual warfare or trials, and and to realize that our suffering is for a little while, One day it's going to give way to eternal glory, which we're going to enjoy forever and ever and ever. So unlike the devil, we're going to go to heaven instead of hell. And so that's a a wonderful thing uh, to be thankful about. Um, I remember Daryl Mansfield. When he, when he used to come through and do the concerts and all, he had a bumper sticker that said, when the devil reminds you of uh, your past, remind him of his future. <laughs> you know, So we shouldn't take that literally because we really don't want to engage the devil in a conversation, but we understand the point of it. So he's got a miserable future ahead. We're going to heaven instead of hell, which is, again, always a cause for thankfulness. We rejoice in the fact also that God makes Satan's attacks always to backfire on him. You notice there in verse 11, God always makes the trials or he always makes the spiritual attacks. He uses them to perfect us, Peter said. That is to develop mature, godly character inside of us, to establish us. In other words, as we, as we are in spiritual warfare, we navigate it successfully with the Lord. All that warfare does is to make us more stable. It forces our roots to go down deeper into our relationship with God and into God's Word than they otherwise would if everything was just easy all of the time. And so it makes us and our faith even more immovable. And, and, and as one person uh, put it, making our faith as solid as granite. It also, uh, God uses these things, turns it around on the devil to strengthen us. And so it, he uses it to make us stronger. Satan's persecution and his opposition uh, to Christians, all he does ultimately is produce stronger and stronger and stronger Christians. And then also to settle us. In other words, when these warfare comes and all we've got to hold on to is God uh, and what his word says, and we go to those places, it just it drives us right down to the bedrock of our faith and it leaves us even more fully settled and established in our faith. It must be very, very frustrating to be the devil in the light of all of this. Because every time he goes to attack a Christian, he's got to weigh this. He is either going to be successful in his attack of 
disrupting a Christian's walk with the Lord for some uh, significant length of time or taking them down some kind of a wrong path or something like that. Or he runs the risk of being left with a Christian who he has played a part in making stronger than ever before. And as a result, Peter tells us in verse 11, we should actively rejoice and give God praise in the midst of all suffering, trial, persecution, and spiritual warfare. So as Peter is thinking about this, he's thinking about the fact of how here's the devil, he is real, he does attack, he is a roaring lion, he is ruthless, he's terrible in a way that you just can't describe. But as he thinks about how God's grace is greater still and God always makes it to backfire on the devil, he just can't help but just to begin to give the Lord praise and thanksgiving for that great truth. Why? Because he has personal experience with that uh, truth. In Luke chapter 22, just before Jesus is about to be crucified, <clears throat> he tells all the disciples they're going to deny him. Peter says, though they all deny you, I'm not going to deny you. And Jesus said to Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. He's asked for you by name. But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail and when you've returned to me, you'll fail. Your faith won't. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Peter couldn't believe it about himself. He said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. There's nothing they could ever do to me to, for me to deny you. And then Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you deny me three times that you even know me. And we know the story, Peter got sifted, but like us, Jesus made sure that his faith didn't fail. And on the other side of that sifting by the devil, he came out more mature spiritually, more stable spiritually, more strong spiritually, more settled spiritually. And the devil paid a very high price for that opportunity to attack Peter in that way. Because as Jesus said to him, when you return, and you will return, I'll make sure of it, then you spend your life strengthening the brethren. And that ministry of Peter goes on to this day in this room through the epistles of First and Second Peter. The devil paid a terrible price for that attack, and all of it backfired on him just as God promises to do in our lives. I want to close by just saying I think it's also important that when the devil does attack us in this realm of praise, in this realm of worship, I mean, we should never let him attack us without him really paying a price for it. And when he attacks us, it's, it's so good to turn to just praise and worship directed toward the Lord in our own lives. Just begin to worship the Lord. Lord, thank you that you're greater in me than he that is in the world. Thank you for saving me. Thank you that I'm on my way to heaven. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And just start to run through the list. And again, the devil will never consider himself more unsuccessful than when he realizes that his attack is driving us to praise and worship directed to the Lord. It's a good time in spiritual warfare 
to know the worship songs we're being led in each week, to sing them to the Lord ourselves, or to buy uh, CDs or download them onto our iPods and then listen to them, have them playing in the car, have them playing at home in order to just be an encouragement to our spirit in the time of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare can be very, very difficult when it is at its deepest and it can, be, it can put you in a one-nostril-out-of-the-water kind of place. And sometimes these things that we look at when we're doing fine right now, and we think, ah, oh, boy, he's just talking up there. But then when the day comes to realize what a difference that praise and worship music can make surrounding our lives at that time until that season of warfare passes, surely the sound of praise being directed to the Lord uh, in, in response to the devil's attack. That has to be the equivalent of nails scratching on a blackboard to him. And if we can make his life miserable, we're happy to do that. So here is Peter's firsthand instruction concerning how to resist, or recognize, resist, and rejoice in the face of spiritual warfare, even when that warfare hits us when life is at its hardest, this works because God will make sure that it works in our lives. And it's very, very valuable instruction indeed. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, again, the devil as it relates to your life, and there's only one victory over the devil, and that is Jesus' victory on the cross, providing the forgiveness of sins, his burial, his rising from the dead, showing his authority over death. And the devil isn't, he, he doesn't, he isn't out to ruin your day, he isn't out to ruin your month, that's not how he works. All he cares about related to you is that you don't end up in heaven. That's all he cares about. And if he can do that by amassing wealth toward you, that you would, could never otherwise know apart from his, his involvement, but that keeps you from surrendering to God and accepting the gospel by giving you power and position and fame and recognition that you wouldn't otherwise know or to bring friends into your life or hobbies or activities in your life that keep you so busy and so self-absorbed that you never give any consideration to your sin or the need for forgiveness, then he's being successful. He doesn't have to show up like they put him in the movies or some kind of a thing, and, and then that's always how he operates. If you sit here today and you have heard the gospel how that God loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for your sins so that you could put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and not perish but have everlasting life. If you have heard that message and done nothing with that message, then the devil is being very successful in your life whether you recognize it or not. You are believing his lie that tells you that you do not need that gospel and that salvation. And that's his job to keep you from ever believing that or believing it, but then never taking the step of putting your trust in that gospel for the forgiveness of sins today. So every person that isn't saved yet, the biggest evidence that we're being a sucker 
to his devices and to his lies is that we have not yet given our life to Christ. And that needs to end today in our lives. And to turn away from his lies, from his deception, and to give your life to Jesus Christ today and begin the life that God now has for you that ends ultimately in heaven rather than in hell and in judgment. And there are going to be pastors and men and women up in front immediately after this service, and they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to be born again today, to have God's Holy Spirit come into you today, actually, truly happen, and begin a personal relationship with God through the Holy Spirit coming into your life. And it's all there for the asking. It's all there for the receiving. Believe God about your need. Believe God about his provision for your need. Don't believe the world and the flesh and the devil on those things. The stakes are way too high. And believe God today and receive his free gift to you today. Let's stand together and we'll pray now. Thank you, Father, for your instruction of your word in this important area. And I just pray that for those that are in this room, and there are many, Lord, that are just right in the middle of deep, deep spiritual warfare at the moment, that this passage would bring great encouragement and perspective to them, the voice of your Holy Spirit. And then, Lord, for others of us that aren't in that place necessarily today, that you would just store this away in our hearts so we could turn to this passage and recognize and resist and rejoice and turn this passage for perspective at that time. Lord, I pray for those that stand before you right now as well, who are new in their Christian life, or they're not yet born again, but they're going to be born again today or sometime soon, and they're going to head into this new life and get hit with spiritual warfare, that they will then remember this passage, Lord, and it will keep them safe and their faith safe from the lies of the devil. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.